Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not scared to come down this hill. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. Ultimate OE provides safe, unique hunting-based experiences for passionate hunters and outdoorsmen. From hunting stone sheep in the mountains of British Columbia, rutting moose on the gravel bars of the Yukon, to chasing roaring red stags in the highland of Scotland, Ultimate OE's paid overseas experiences are designed for hunters, by hunters, to maximise enjoyment, learning and experience. For more information, it can be found at ultimateoe.co.nz or flick us an email, give us a call, we're always happy to talk through what kind of hunting adventure would be best for you. Today's conversation is with Finn Ross. Finn is a, a young Kiwi. He is super passionate about ecology. It's where he is studying at the moment. But he's also a passionate hunter and he's just a young guy that is very entrepreneurial. And that was partly why I wanted to speak to him. I think it's a great attribute for young people to have. He started Let Them Fish at the age of 16 and he is now in part with his family looking to make big changes on a iconic Central Otago or Southern Lakes high country station and use the skill set he's gained from traveling around and studying. So big things happening for him and his family. Uh, it was a super motivational conversation for me. You know, it allowed me to see the strength in entrepreneurity and and the support that is given. And also it, it actually made me sit and look at the fact that I could probably do a little bit more with my time. So uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I know you will. It jumps from hunting to study to the farm itself and the changes they're making, but all of it is good content. It all ties back to the small changes that we can make. So uh, enjoy the podcast. So, Finn, how are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, good, <laughs> good to see you this morning. Yeah, bit of a, I guess, an early start for me, boosted over here, and basically just going to sit down and have a chat with you, really. it's You reached out to us on social media, which is great. And then I spent a little bit of time scrolling you. I don't know, <laughs> don't know how that sits with you, but I, I did that. Basically, it became pretty apparent I wanted to come and talk to you about a few things. And, you know, I know it's going to make for a good conversation. And I just, I don't know exactly where it's going to go at this point, but um, we'll just get talking and see where we go. So, so where, did, where, where did hunting start for you? Well, we grew up in Auckland as a family, so moved down to South Island uh, after I left school, but grew up in Auckland. So, and my dad uh, was into hunting when he was young, born on a farm, but then obviously moved to the moved to the city, so it wasn't really a part of our lives. And we actually started probably a bit different to other people, doing a few sort of more estate hunts out of Auckland for the weekend. You know, with the Godfather, would just go down for a weekend, go to a lodge, and and started sort of that way. But pretty soon, me and my younger brother, we we just loved it so much. And then started coming down to the South Island a bit on family holidays and got into the hills down around here, the Southern Lakes, a few times. And then it wasn't wasn't long before we were pretty hooked on um, the public land adventures. Then after coming down to Christchurch for uni, it was, yeah, sort of every, every weekend was in the hills exploring land and cool. wilderness. Yeah, And that, that is, like, you're correct in the fact that, I guess, that entry into to hunting other than your father's, but the entry for you into hunting is probably a little bit different, but it's a... Um it is an entry into hunting that is a growing. 
Mm. And I think it's a it's a really good way. You know, if you don't if you're not surrounded in public access land, or even if you are and don't have the immediate skill sets, I think it's a really good way to enter into hunting. You know, and when when you did, I guess estate hunts or or you know um, managed hunts, you know, and the fact yep. that somebody was running them, did you learn from that, or was it self self guided? I guess. I think so. Yeah, my yeah my grandfather was another pretty big influencer on him uh, uh, for me. I guess yeah, I, I didn't really have any idea what was what was going on when we were first hunting. I didn't really have any concept of where we are or why the animals were here or why why they weren't. And you know, my first few hunts were all would see forty deer in the morning or whatever. And you know, took took my first deer and in that sort of setting. And then it wasn't you know for a while that I really understood the you know the true nature of sort of wild hunting in New Zealand. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's what. You're not going to see 40 deer every day. Yeah, no, def- <laughs> definitely not. And um, but I guess yeah, maybe if I, I I hadn't entered through that way, I wouldn't be as addicted as I am now. Perhaps if I started out, you know, on a lot of these hunts I've been doing lately, I've you know been going for four or five days and just seeing a few animals. Not you know happy happy to go for a few days without seeing a deer. Maybe mm-hmm. if I started off doing that, I wouldn't be wouldn't be as keen. Yeah, yeah. No, that's something that I've definitely bounced around in my head. You know, and. I've, raised it publicly before about the fact that I'm concerned that we're sort of one generation away from hunting becoming Mm. a minority or more of a minority and then I sort of think well you know if we had all these management structures in there the models that I know well of Canada and so forth would hunting even be that popular here in New Zealand if said beginner could only go out and shoot one deer a year yeah like would would we even have as many hunters as we've got now because the unfortunate reality is regardless of how it sits with you some guys hunt because they can go out and shoot deer off the back of farms all the time mm. and, and maybe not be so resourceful maybe you know do it for their own reasons but but they still become hunters at some form and it's it's a it's a i guess it's quite a big topic but it's it's an interesting start and then but then also you're obviously well you're well educated but you obviously think through things because i would think that some hunters that started seeing large numbers of deer would have difficulty with then all of a sudden not seeing large animals large numbers of animals yeah, right. you know yeah. like it would almost negatively impact their hunting future mm. whereas for you it's kind of become a drive yeah I, th- I think so I guess it's yeah more just learning about um my grandfather was one of the first deer farmers in the North Island and hearing about the deer recovery days from him yeah experiencing that you know proper South Island wilderness was where it, uh, how I took the next step there mm. yeah no that's cool I guess one of the one of the bigger discussions i wanted to have with you and and we can go as far down this rabbit hole as you want is it's my understanding that you're a vegan and hunt yeah um so first up i guess run me through how that works yeah so i'm yeah i've been vegan for a year and a half now vegetarian for sort of two years but well i'm actually sort of more ecotarian so i'll eat red meat or fish about once every week once every 10 days if i've taken the animal's life myself mm-hmm. is, sorry is eco e- ecotarian sort of just an environmentally you, a, conscious diet okay yeah yep. just s- sort of almost hyper aware of what you're eating mm-hmm. and uh with utmost respect to the ecosystems that you know where the food's coming from sort okay. of okay yeah not not a very widely used term i don't know it's new to me but that's all right <laughs> Yeah, so I, I so, so I still do eat red meat if I've taken the animal's life myself, and obviously I'm really keen sparrow as well and fishermen, so really enjoy eating fish. Um, if I've if I've caught the fish myself, but obviously, but but I'm still just as happy to go for months and months without eating eating mm-hmm. meat. Um, so d- just don't let me interrupt your thoughts, but do, mm. do you still eat 
like sort of meat in that because you like it or because you need to? And I understand there's arguments saying you mm. don't need to eat meat, but do, do you believe that maybe you do need some form or is it purely that you like it? It's, I think actually actually neither for me. I think, I, you know, I, I enjoy venison, but I would just be as happy if I never had to never never had it had it again mm-hmm. and i yeah i i believe i think uh, my diet would be completely fine if i didn't have if i was you know com- completely vegan and after being vegan it started actually in the states when i was exposed to the industrial agricultural system over there and i went you know whatever it was four or five months without eating without eating any meat and i found my body responded really well to it i was able to study f- better uh, focus for longer started running you know did, did an ultra a lot fitter stronger um, slept better, everything. So I felt really good improvements. In my body, which might not be the same for everyone, but I think for me, it, for me, it worked worked really well. Um, but yeah, I guess it comes back to the conversation. Then why do I why do I hunt if it's not really for meat? And I think a lot of hunters probably say it is because of meat. So I guess yeah, for me, it 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 isn't as much. But I I still really enjoy the process of uh, gathering that meat and you know. Handing it out to my flatmates or everyone in Christchurch and fully, fully utilizing the animal, and you know, still, still enjoy cooking and processing it mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. Yep. No, that I mean that's to me that's honest because mm. I, I, I get what you say. Like a lot of hunters will say they do a lot of the meat, but I think quite often that's done post to just to justify, to, to justify, yeah, like, absolutely, not yeah. so much why they went about doing what they did. So that that's it for you. If if you don't, if you haven't harvested it, like, would you eat? Say, I had a barbecue at home and I had venison there that I had hunted would you eat that if I knew maybe exactly where it had came from I mean potentially yeah yeah, yeah. I, I haven't before but if I knew you know the person and exactly where it came from and I maybe hadn't had red meat in a few weeks maybe I'd have a small bit yeah yep. yeah it's and, and I'm not really doing it to say like to go on a vegan streak or whatever mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's definitely a case-by-case basis like I'll also have uh, maybe oysters or mussels because I know we're in a big muscle crisis and we muscle farms are great for ecosystems so i'll mm-hmm. eat mussels as well mm-hmm. um so it's more just about being paying as much uh, attention to where the foods come from and likewise with a lot of vegan products i won't eat because i know not know where they've come from mm. yeah and don't don't it's, agree with their, it's their process i as a hunter i guess sit with vegan or veganism mm. probably as the next closest eating demographic to me and the fact that they take ownership of what it is they're eating like I take ownership of what I eat and I'm happy with my decisions and I feel like they do it next best in line <laughs> and the reason I go down this path is because I, I I will sit and discuss this with them a lot better than those that just don't like me hunting but buy their meat I know that, that confuses me but they don't it's a very blurred discussion yeah. at that point so whereas but one thing and I I, I'm not. I'm only asking you this because I have the opportunity to, and this is not a not a thin direction. Like the trouble with veganism is, is that small percentage that are quote unquote batshit crazy, and they just keep pushing it and pushing <laughs> yeah, it and definitely. pushing it, and yeah. it it's ruining veganism f- for the the good vegans. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. And it's not it's not something I'm not not suggesting anyone else should be ecotarian or and I'm really fortunate to be able to make that choice, you know. I can go to the supermarket and and choose my food um and I can, you know, I have the ability to go out and harvest harvest venison whenever I want. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm yeah, pretty fortunate to be able to be in that position to make a choice and I think we can all make 
better choices, but I'm not suggesting that anyone stick to Should whatever diet yeah. it is. I think everyone's got to just find the diet that works for them and make the best decisions they can and just to really try and understand where that you know where that product started mm-hmm. yeah but obviously not to any extreme case where you're reading every single label and just taking up all your time or whatever it's just been yeah. it's got to and, and, a, and a gradual transition like it wasn't like i went vegan overnight i slowly you know understood you know dif- different animals different crops where they came from and then just slowly started phasing different different things out mm-hmm. and different things in yeah sorry this is a good time for me to ask some questions around veganism so if if right now if say your whole family and friends went vegan mm-hmm. and you then didn't have a method to utilize the meat, would you still hunt? I know this, this is yeah, it could be should be, but I'm just trying to figure out where it sits with you. Right, if I was if I had had to hunt and and meat would be wasted. Mm. Well, I guess maybe if I was hunting in the states or somewhere, I would I would I wouldn't hunt because I know the animals an important part of of the ecosystem here i i I, w- I wouldn't I, I wouldn't want to unless it was for a specific purpose like culling mm-hmm. but obviously i know you know understand here that we've got to take a certain amount of each animals each year and they they need to be killed each year otherwise uh the ecosystem's not going to be in balance so I, mm-hmm. if, if they weren't being killed and the only option was for me to kill them and have them waste then i would probably still hunt yeah yeah and then another question because in I actually don't have anybody in my family or anything that's vegan, so mm. this is actually genuine questions. Yeah. yeah, part of being a vegan is, I guess, for some, it might it could be speaking across the board here, but is in relation to animal cruelty. Is that right? Or yeah. Well, the three, the three uh, pillars of veganism, mm-hmm. uh, as it is, um, health is uh, health, environmentalism, and yeah, cruelty as well. I have I haven't been exposed to much animal rights. I think that's a lot smaller part of it than what you know most people associate veganism with, wanting to um, you know not not take animals' life. Mm-hmm. I think the much bigger proportion of vegans, definitely in New Zealand, is for environmental reasons. Secondly, health, and then maybe thirdly, mm-hmm. animal. So animal we, environmental is referenced lower carbon for emissions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I understand that. Okay. Yeah, I guess because in my mind I was like, well, how do you shoot an animal? Like, where does mm. animal cruelty stop and start? Yeah, me? well, I mean, the other thing for me is, uh, you know, having having been exposed to agriculture and the meatworks, mm-hmm. I can't really justify in myself my meat coming from the meatworks. I don't really, not that I disagree with that process, but I just can't really accept that for myself. It's not something I'm comfortable with, having seen the animals going through and, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of throats cut. Mm-hmm. Having my meat come from that system, it's not something that I've. Yep. Yeah. No, I understand that. And then, and versus, I don't guess I'm not comfortable with it, but I understand it, so I sit there comfortably. Like mm. you know, I, I, I would, I would say my diet is, in terms of protein, eighty percent harvested by me. Certainly not all. Yeah. Like I, you know, young family, we still buy sausages or mince or mm. you know something. Something I guess affordable, unfortunately, but it's 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 a difficult one to sit on sit with because I I, I do totally understand what you're saying and and it is you know it's an unfortunate fact and then it's sort of like and, and then I've got good friends in the farming sector too and like um, and I certainly wouldn't blame them at all because they're in hand trying to 
compete price wise. Like it's another form of business, and everything mm. gets driven. And I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not saying if the consumers stop buying that form of meat, then they would then have to change, or vice versa. I don't know. I don't know where that sits, but mm. um, it is definitely an interesting thought process. Mm. And, I mean, and yeah, and we're I guess having this conversation from a sheep and beef station. So I completely, completely respect that process, and completely. Well, and, and agree with the process that comes from this area and the majority of New Zealand agriculture, you know, is, is a lot better than the rest of the world. What I, mm. you know, don't agree with is big industrial feedlots and you mm-hmm. know, pig farms and, and, and whatever yeah. overseas. And, you know, there are different aspects of New Zealand agriculture, but largely we're, you know, we are pretty the world good on um, animal welfare you- and uh, um, low, lower carbon footprint. Yeah, cause carbon I, I, and you're, again, you'll, you'll probably know the specifics on this, but I read some stuff on emissions and around milk and milk alternatives and their emissions Mm. and stuff and and you know internationally the likes of almond sat far lower than than milk uh than dairy milk but then in new zealand they were actually comparatively pretty close because of the fact we do it better and and Mm -hmm. use the natural landscape and stuff so we do sort of buck a few trends here and I, i think it's probably unfortunate for the dairy industry in New Zealand that that's not showing you know mm. I'm not saying it's a defense but sometimes they get a pretty hard rap too like I've got family that are involved in some of the I won't say their names but big milk buying companies yeah and you know they're sort of always under pressure and I get that there needs to be targeted pressure in different forms although that's how we get change but I think regardless of what it is I think it's very unfortunate when staff or the working stages of people get affected by that negatively i think mm. that's unfair oh absolutely yeah and it's taken a toll on you know mental health and yeah. you know uh dairy industry's got has struggling with some mental health issues at the moment mm. and that's i think it's a sign that we've you know maybe taken it a bit far and mm-hmm. in some areas with with pressure mm-hmm. yeah um and yeah it's new zealand is the most efficient producer of dairy in the world mm. and but i guess that you know it's very specific on different different systems and maybe the Mackenzie Basin is a lot higher carbon footprint milk yep. than, you know, oh, I agree. or whatever. I live yeah. in Alexandra and still baffles me to how we have dairy farms in mm. a semi-desert, <laughs> but either way. So you touched on um, your time in the States. What was that for? So that was, uh, I was studying wildlife, fish and conservation biology at UC Davis uh, mm. for, for a year. That was part of my undergraduate, yeah. Right. Interesting, and yeah, it was it's a yeah complicated structure around my degree and papers that we definitely don't want to get into. But yeah, yeah so I've done done a year in in Davis in the states of wildlife and conservation, and then uh, a third of a year, so two months in South Africa with the Wildlands Program, doing ecology and wildlife research all around South Africa. We're you know camping in different places and learning about different field projects and you know con- conservation and community issues in South Africa, which is incredible. And then, yeah, now just finishing my degree at, at Canterbury in ecology and economics. So pretty keen on that environmental and business business mix. Mm-hmm. And that is hopefully going to take me to to Australia, to either Monash or University of Queensland next year to do my honours in corporate sustainability. Right. Mm. Basically jamming OEs with studying. Yeah, yeah. I've been <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty fortunate to to have those opportunities, yeah, to yeah. study in a few different places. But it's, it's cool that um, I guess you through that are immersing yourself into different models mm. like you know i imagine 
well, from my understanding, is like America is slightly different to how they do it in Africa versus what we're doing here. Absolutely. You know, and yeah. Australia is going to have its own little things too. And regardless of whether you're there exactly to study it with your interest, it's going to be mm. apparent to you. So was there some big learnings? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah some... Something to bring back for here, back, back to New Zealand? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the biggest takeaway from South Africa and America coming back, you know, understanding their their wildlife management systems coming back to here is just how little research we have on our big game animal species in New Zealand comparatively. There's just not nearly as much research as there should be on and on game animal management. And obviously that's because uh, they're pest invasive mm-hmm. species, etc. But I don't think that should justify how little research or how little discussion around research there has been. And obviously the, you know, Tar Foundation has got some got some guys and at Lincoln and Lanker researchers, some awesome scientists, but yeah, I definitely don't think it's enough and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty vocal in my opinion. I think we should have a, you know, pretty open discussion around game animal, animal management in New Zealand, mm-hmm. mostly for the reason that the, you know, the current system, it's, uh, is, is more, is more around fluctuations of populations, you know, yep. and we very reactive, very, very <laughs> reactive. Yeah. yeah. And, and all dependent on the price of venison or whatever it is, you know, or, or price of fuel or whatever. There's populations of, of all different herds are fluctuating and constantly have been for the last hundred years since they've been introduced. And it's not good for the animals because, you know, suddenly there's none and then suddenly they get thousands get shot or whatever. It's not good for the hunters because we don't have really have consistency. Um, but the most important thing is it's not good for the ecosystem because the plants are grazed back to nothing and then they grow back and it's affecting seed dispersal and, you know, and bird movements as well. Um, the, I mean, one of the things that's not talked about is, uh, you know, grazing of saplings limits uh, the un- undergrowth species. And that's where a lot of the birds get their food from. And suddenly there's none in an area. Well, suddenly there is. And it's affecting bird movements right. and, and everything. Yeah. That's interesting. So I think, yeah, I think we definitely need a, um increased management discussion in New Zealand to, to, get a, to get stable populations. And we don't really have any numbers on what populations should be uh, especially around red deer chamois maybe they're talking a little bit about on it on tar but obviously there's some pretty great examples of what has been done if we do even just have a little bit of management discussion around you know field and wapiti foundation mm-hmm. tar whatever it is it's it's uh not too difficult i think to to get to a place where we agree or not as difficult as some people think it's going to be yeah yeah so do you think do you think that can be achieved with the current organizations or boards or do you think I don't, I don't know. Or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I th- well, I mean, the, the only solution that I can see from as as an undergraduate, I guess, from my thing, I think need to get encourage a lot more young students to do their honours, masters, PhD projects, and game animal, animal management. I think there'd be lots of people who'd be keen to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, hunt, hunting groups should be looking to fund people like me and a few of my you know people in my study cohort to get into game animal research and. Spend some time doing what you know Ken Tustin did with the tar research, but mm-hmm. you know using some really modern methods on animal surveying and um, population yeah. densities, etc. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then the one word you used there was uh, to fund, and, yeah. and we're we're yeah, not right. good yeah. at that. Yeah. yeah, I've raised the the point a few yeah. times around you know hunters need you know needing to fund in different forms mm. and and for different reasons and different things, and yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, so touching on the tar thing, how do you how do you feel about the the current tar plan, I guess? 
Yeah, so they just released an update yesterday, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, the main thing that I read from yesterday, and I definitely do not do not have as much understanding as a lot of people do, mm-hmm. from my, my, I guess my two cents from walking around the hills a bunch and reading some of these reports, is it, it seemed to me like Waro were asking for more, more game animal recovery. And is there a way we can incentivize more of these animals to be recovered? You know, I mean, ideally it should be 100% of the animals are recovered, either, mm-hmm. you know, shot by locals international hunters or or waro and i mean we were just having a conversation uh, earlier this week with the brand called yumi i'm sure you'll be familiar with them they're a luxury handbag brand in auckland um <laughs> i'll take your word for it yeah. <laughs> and they they're they're using um uh, deer skins as a uh that we'll, that we'll be throwing out in the Abattoirs. in the yeah, yeah in the deer farming industry so they've they've used that so maybe we can use all these these skins off the tar to add a little bit more value maybe that's going to make it a little bit more economical to recover them let's look at things like you know recovering their skins and getting them made into handbags or you know hopefully the meat as well different things to make it um to incentivize a bit more recovery of the animals yeah and i mean mm. just just the other week i was uh you know on, on a hunt came across 12 dead carcasses that had been rotting in a creek for a year and you think no, I completely, and, and they were really close to a, a town, like this is somewhere you could go for a, almost a morning walk for a, mm. um, or a day walk for a tar, and it seemed like that is, you know, a bit of a waste, Such so close to town, I, you know, completely agree we need culls. You can see, you know, I was walking through Beach Frost the other day, and I guess from doing a lot of ecology work and vegetation surveys, you can just completely see they've, they've decimated it, and it's, I guess, maybe hunters don't quite have an understanding of that, because they don't know what it should look, should look like, and what it looks like and but you can just see that you know the tar of and the fragmented beach forests that are trying to come back and they they won't be able to and it's they've taken mm-hmm. out the industry plant so in that area definitely culls are, so, so culls are warranted. they won't be able to come back whilst there's tar there or they won't be able to come back well while there's tar there and yeah yeah, yeah while yeah. while there's tar there they're just eating all this all the beach saplings but you know and then saw these 12 tar that have been rotting in a creek for a year and you just think how's that good management you know mm-hmm. Although it's difficult to see around it, it just didn't really didn't seem right seeing mm. twelve dead cut tar sitting in a creek mm. so close to. Yeah, well, I guess it's, the the question is, how is that a good form of management? Because yeah. the management's probably right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But how's that how we got about doing that and and, and the utilisation and all that sort mm. of stuff? No, it's a, it's a tough one. Yeah, and I, it's it's there's there's a there's a lot of stuff behind it, and I think. I think the guys, you know, behind the Tar Foundation and so forth are doing all they can. And they're doing a good job mm. based on the fact that it's a voluntary basis, you know, like it's, you know, guys, you know, that are willing to put their hand up and try and look after something for every other hunter as a minority. And they're doing a good job. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is it's going to go ahead at the moment. Another one of the big topics I wanted to talk to you about was, well, I guess I'll start with your entrepreneurial drive. Mm. Like you, you know, for a young guy, you you seem to have a lot of drive about wanting to make change, be it, I guess, with the way you eat, you know, as a personal level, through to, you know, emissions, through to, you know, where you want to be. Like, is that, is that something that was, and this is not hunting related, is this something that you picked up from your family or is that just sort of... Yeah, no, it's something I de- definitely inherited it and being exposed yeah. to a pretty entrepreneurial family. You're my, lucky in that Yeah, form. very lucky in that sense, yeah. My, both my mother and father are pretty, you know, keen entrepreneurs and also my grandfather as well. Mm-hmm. So I think I definitely picked it up from there. And then, yeah, I guess that started for me with, with Let Them Fish. Yep. Um, 
in in high school. Yeah, so I don't know if you want to get yeah, no, I want to talk about that. Yep. Yeah, yep. so that was so um, you were sixteen at the time. Sixteen, yeah, mm-hmm. and there was a the young enterprise competition that they do in schools. Mm-hmm. And we, my best mate Max and I, we were second to last year of school, and we had this idea both at the time you know super keen young fishermen would go away rock fishing for the weekend and 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 we just were just frothing frothing fishing at the time mm-hmm. yeah and we just saw about so much waste like in Auckland there's so much uh, recreational boaties you know thousands of boaties going out into the gulf and all this fishing gear that's sort of in garages or you know everyone's got an old rod or some old tackle mm. in their garage and then after you know sort of family trip to Fiji and to my granddad um does half the year vanilla farming in Tonga, uh, spending mm. a bit of time in his village up there, uh, sort of seeing seeing the need up there. And so we yeah, uh, came up with Let Them Fish through the Young Enterprise Foundation and we were collecting uh, secondhand fishing gear from all around Auckland and Northland and Tauranga and repairing it. And we were just inundated with support. It was pretty amazing to see the fishing community um, really, really want to get behind us and set up, uh, send us all this gear. And we were just, we had so much gear, and we were spending all our weekends repairing tackle and picking up, driving around to the stores, picking it all up, and then packaging it up to send to impoverished communities and remote villages in Tonga and Fiji. Yeah, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. We got, we got flown up to Tonga and Fiji uh, when we when we finished school and lived in a few of the villages up there and distributing fishing gear and yeah, working with some of the communities up there. Yeah, yeah. so. Concept-wise, and this might be pre where you find yourself now in life, was that about, I'll just say it out loud and you derive what I'm trying to say, they surely were already fishing. Yeah. But is this about, I guess, improving their chances or or trying to get rid of, um, is it waste I'm looking for? Or, um, you know, like I I assume they used to do a lot with nets and Mm. and maybe still do. A lot of people, yeah, I guess the the two criticisms we had were you know they're already fishing mm-hmm. and you're just giving them more gear and they're already in depleted ecosystems up there where the fish numbers have completely crashed just adding to that you know adding yeah, to yeah. the unsustainable another, fish, fisheries that's going up there so we're fish. just taking taking more and more fish and you know giving extra uh you know fishing crap into these villages so that was something two things we were super mindful of and it wasn't like we were going up there and just giving out uh, fishing gear to whoever because it you know all goes to the chief and his sons or whatever mm-hmm. we worked with church groups and village leaders and the Nganga Giving Foundation in Fiji established charities because I guess for two young white boys to go around in the villages you know it's really complex culture language barriers and everything so we yeah we had to work with existing institutions up there to know that actually let's let's give this gear to the exact person who really needs it for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, you know, not not going to waste. <clears throat> and also, yeah, a, a lot of the fishing was sort of just gill nets close to the reef and using really small net size. So we didn't send any nets, which is obviously, you know, if they're gill netting around mangroves, which is the nursery, it's and they're getting lots of fish, but they're depleting, de- stocks. depleting the stocks completely. <laughs> yeah. So giving them the equipment. And obviously, we also don't want them to be taking big, Breeding fish, obviously, you know, people mm-hmm. know the big snapper in New Zealand are the breeding ones that we should let go. It's the same in a lot of ecosystems. So taking a few a few of the medium-sized fish and, and different stocks and, you know, giving them the ability to access different different fish stocks and 
uh, sending some spearfishing equipment over as well, some hand spears, so which is obviously the most selective form of fishing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was really trying to get that balance to make sure this is doing more good. So it was an education, Ed- education around it as format with it as well, as well. Yeah, yeah. and that was excuse me, 2014 or something? 2015, 16. And actually it was uh, the the year we went for a month in December and that was Cyclone Windstone had happened in February that year. So it was, well, we actually we did shipments over a few years, but that was our main month when we went up there and, and Cyclone Windstone. So it was a big part of it was response to that because obviously a lot of the communities were seriously struggling. Mm. Fiji lost 50% of their your country's GDP after that so it was pretty good timing and then Max and I went separate ways you know I went to the States for uni and he was down at, he's down at Lincoln but it's something we're looking at rebooting potentially this, right. I was this say, summer because there's still yeah. follow up you know we always get requests we've still got the social media pages online where can I drop off gear how can I help um, we've still got messages from and, and yeah if if people want to see exactly what's happened in Fiji and Tonga you can check out the Facebook page let them fish mm-hmm. um there's a really cool letter on there that details exactly exactly what happened in the village and how it changed some of these families yeah i'll put, lives. That, I'll put yeah. that link on yeah at the that's tail of yeah, the podcast so, as well. uh, there's one yeah particularly powerful letter on there but yeah it's something we're looking at doing again this year and obviously after the last few years mass mass bleaching of coral up there so the ecosystems are really really not looking good mm. so it's we're keen to incorporate a bit more education and climate change response into it as as well, um, which is something we're we're working out how to do as these yeah coral ecosystems are, are really really struggling at the moment because you know it was something when I first went as a fa- you know family holiday to Fiji ten twenty years ago you see all the you know beautiful coral etc and now you can go to those same areas outside those resorts and it's just all white everything's dead hmm. yeah I'm about to go. <laughs> next month so I'll, I'll let you know how it looks hopefully now some, yeah hope you can find some good coral yeah so given given that entrepreneurial drive and, and mm. whatnot now your your family so we started off you were living in Auckland yeah. now the family is living down here in Wanaka yeah on a sheep and beef station just yep. sheep sheep yeah, and beef seven, station 7,000 merinos and a few hundred cattle yeah yeah and are you are you looking to put your stamp on this as well or is this just a you know, we're just here because mum and dad are here. Or no, this is yeah, super involved in our in our projects here, which are really exciting. So yeah, and it's a pretty cool opportunity for me around what I've been studying with ecology, wildlife management to put into place some really cool game animal animal management on on the station, which is mm-hmm. uh, which which I'm really enjoying. You know, getting low density but really high quality herds for our, uh, for our deer and other ungulate species. Is is the intention to to hunt here, like as in guided expeditions, or is it going to be family orientated? Yeah, small scale free range guiding. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had so we've only been on the property for a year and a half, mm-hmm. and we did a sort of trial this year with a few small guiding groups. But it's something you know we're all really passionate hunters ourselves as a family, but none of us want to be going to the trade shows and doing a full marketing thing for our station. So, yeah, it's something it's something we're working out as if we can, you know, put a potentially a unique spin on the hunt, maybe whatever it is, offering a carbon neutral hunt, which I don't think anyone else in New Zealand would have, mm-hmm. or, you know, including a bit more sort of history into it, pretty close to some of the, you know, the first liberation and whatever it was, 1871 of Red Deer in the area. 
and uh, also putting a bit of an ecology spin. So learning how the deer interact with the rest of the ecosystem, you know, biodiversity, whatever it is, if people are interested in a bit of birding, talking about a bit how some of the plants and grass species are responding and, and different mm-hmm. things like that. So, so yeah, but our, our other projects here, yeah, I'm lucky to be pretty hands-on, you know, the biodiversity front, I'm trying to encourage all these species back. Some of the bird species, so I've got a few, we've got 180 species I've identified so far on the place, and that's everything. So okay, we got, yeah, we're doing yeah, everything, yeah. fungi, so grasshoppers, birds, <laughs> yeah. um, no, there's only, I think, about 12, yeah, yeah. 12 birds like, on the place. The yeah. Um, no, they've only got 120, 190 in New Zealand. In New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> that's where I was going, I was like, what? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and that, so we're trying to document every species on the place, we've got four keystone species that we're using to sort of symbolise the biodiversity on the station. And then, so that's one important part. Water quality, another really important part, obviously. But the biggest thing for me is carbon budgeting, and that's where I think we have the biggest opportunity to give back on the station with a huge area of land that obviously we want to, um, you know, uh, let other people explore as well. But in terms of giving back, it's a big area, and we think we can really give back through carbon sequestration, through soil, different grass types, also through big planting. So we're planting 10,000 trees every year for the next 10 years in a big really? riparian corridor on the lakefront. And then, yeah, we want to be we want to be carbon carbon neutral, obviously, which we are on, on the station. You're, but you're currently carbon neutral? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, and we're just working through our budgeting at the moment, but we're, we're definitely a, a lot more than carbon neutral. And we want to be 10 times carbon neutral at the end of the year. So not so for every, for every ton of carbon we emit, we lock in... 10 carbon 10, mm-hmm. 10 tons of carbon and then we own the credit for our 10 times and then we can go beyond that and sequester more carbon but then sell those carbon carbon units which is something I'm, so you I'm, can well, this confuses the yeah shit right I mean, I'm yeah. Not gonna lie. yeah you can sell your goodwill carbon yeah is so that a very primitive <laughs> so we've got if we've got a hectare of kanuka and mm-hmm. um, we've got a photo of it from you know, everything was eerily mapped, whatever it was, in 1993. And then we've got another aerial photo in, you know, a few years ago, whatever that was, 20 years between, or um, 16 years between first photo and last photo of a hectare of Kanuka. Then you go to the carbon tables and that says you've sequestered 230 tonnes of carbon from all those trees growing mm-hmm. as they photosynthesize. And then whoever it is in New Zealand or Zed who are looking to offset their emissions from their company, they just burnt um, 200 tons of carbon flying to New Plymouth. Then yep. they can say, we want to buy those carbon credits somewhere. So, And then they, they pay us for our carbon credits, which incentivizes us to lock away more areas of land for carbon. Mm. And that's something I'm pretty keen so, on. And then, sorry. Yep. And then, because when you get on a plane now, it says, do you want to pay $5 to yeah. offset? So, offset? So essentially, we could be buying them. Yeah, that, you, you yeah, could be you could be paying for us, the cost to, on to, us. to plant yeah, plant yeah, trees. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. which is, is good. Like I'm not. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but obviously there's it's got to be a ch- uh, management use of that land change. So we were using it for sheep, and now we're using it for for carbon mm-hmm. or something. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity here for for farmers to, and you know, particularly in the high country centre, which is something I know a little, little bit more about, to encourage. Uh, locking off marginal land and letting it mm. go for carbon, and there's an extra income source from that, uh, from carbon credits. Yeah, which is something I'm, you know, potentially looking at. So the biggest help, guess, helping out other high country properties uh, find a way to gain that extra revenue stream from selling that, carbon. That, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but then, like, for that model, they're basically going to be freehold. Like, you've got to own them because of 
Yeah, it with, it it is <clears throat> it where yeah we're freehold here, so yeah. yeah, it's a lot easier. Is you can do it off leasehold land, but it's a bit tricky. Yeah, yeah. it gets yeah. pretty tricky. Yeah, mm. it's interesting. Mm. So and so you're you're planting ten thousand trees for the next ten years. Ten yeah each year for the next ten. Yep. So we've just yep. done a few weeks ago finished eight thousand, then we're doing two thousand in spring. So. Because I'm aware of like you know billing trees and a few other initiatives. Like, do you just take that all on board yourself? Is that like, do you just fund this? Yeah, if that makes it. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty Without, high cost. We don't of, need to talk about any private stuff, but it's, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, we have a little bit ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, mostly to offset our emissions as a family and also as a farm. So that's the stuff we will pay for ourselves because we think it's our duty to offset our own emissions. Well, not duty, but sort of responsibility. Yeah. Something we want to do. But then, obviously, through Billion Trees, which is happening, so we can access funding through them and some other community grants. Yeah, so yeah, I guess we're taking on a little bit ourselves, but there's there are opportunities out there, especially through Billion Trees. There's a, a huge amount of funding opportunities for mm. most rural New Zealand to do something similar at no significant cost to. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. And what are, is there anything else you're working on? I mean, not not that that was an insignificant amount of work, but yeah. Well, I mean, the four species we've got here: we've got the native falcon, uh, the Otago and Grand Skink. So we're working with Carnan High Country to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've just done all our uh, pest control on possums, but you know, potentially to do some trapping for the Otago and Grand Skinks, which are New Zealand's biggest reptile and endangered and then we've got the Clutha flathead galaxid which some people are calling the second most endangered fish in New Zealand and some of the back creeks are working at hmm. how we can stop stop trout coming up and um, eating them, eating them. Yeah. yeah things huh. like that yeah that's cool jeepers you got lots going on yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so back to back to hunting yep what style of hunting what you know what are you enjoying the most currently well, yeah, over the last few months of hunting for me, I've really been enjoying taking new people new people out. It's a mm-hmm. cousin or a family friend to get their first deer or first animal. It's something, you know, now that I've shot a few animals myself, really, you know, taking new people out and getting them onto something new or, you know, first first bull tar, looking for a trophy for someone else. Um, but then, yeah, really enjoying the expedition style, you know, multi-day backpack, mm-hmm. backpacks and mountaineering mm-hmm. into, into the... So, well, yeah. that being said... Is it likely you'll take ownership of the guided hunt, which is only just a very short description of what you're offering? But mm. is it is that you see yourself doing that? P- potentially, yeah. I guess it depends where I am next yeah, well, year. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess it's it's something I enjoy, and I did a few sort of semi semi guiding trips this this year, mm-hmm. um, which, which you know which I really enjoyed. But it's not something I want to pursue as a as a career, career. yeah. Well, the the one thing that it, when you described, I guess, what you see as your point of difference is it actually excited me from a guide point of view because if if the type of client you're attracting wants to know more and mm. takes more ownership of what they're doing and, and is there to learn, it's a very different type of client than what I would typically have guided yeah. in my, in, historically and. Very different type of client that I felt detached from, you know. Like sometimes I guided people, and I just didn't have any attachment to why why right. they were there, what they were doing, you know. And it just became a straight out role. Yeah, I'm there to find them an out. Whereas, you know, I don't know anything about ecology or anything, you know. Like, but it's I could see you having a very good client that you would get on with. So it would be an experience that I think you could equally both get 
as much out of and I think that's quite cool that's you're lucky like that would be quite a cool experience. yeah I think so um, but you know obviously it's probably not going to be for everyone as well you know if we're in the middle of a hunt and the client says why is this guy taking a photo of this bloody beetle or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I guess <clears throat> you know as long as your advertising and marketing is accurate then yeah. it mightn't be a surprise mm. to them but no that's cool so obviously without diving right back down the vegan track so now We've talked about that, and, and we're on a sheep and beef farm, and we're talking about we've talked about, I guess, becoming more carbon neutral. But what are you doing anything differently with likes of the livestock or, or the way you farm them? Like, is that changing, or is that still a model that you sort of have to stick within the perceived parameters? No, we're de- yeah, we're definitely looking. I mean, we're looking at looking at changing the models a little bit to a bit more sort of regenerative agriculture, which I don't know a lot about, but. Um, I mean, from my limited understanding is longer rotation cycles and letting pasture get a little bit longer, more more grass diversity. And when it's a, it gets to a threshold where it can get to a, a, a um, slightly longer length and then it's able to sequest um, more carbon and become carbon negative through the, through the root systems rather than if it's sort of shorter rotation cycles, it's not able to sequest as much, mm-hmm. as much carbon. Yeah. So you're so, deliberately growing the grass longer? For the carbon benefit, as opposed to feed. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. There's. I mean, there's. There's a. It's something I don't know a lot about, and mm-hmm. it's a pretty pretty complicated science. But the other thing it lends itself to is longer soil fertility as well. And um, you know, if you've got your different legumes and different grass species, they you know complement each other, and more nutrients in the soil for for a longer time, less uh, less runoff, less vulnerability to drought, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty pretty early early days though. Yeah. I mean, we've only yeah. taken so we did lease the farming operation back to the original owners, mm-hmm. but we've taken on that with the new farm manager only two months ago. So mm-hmm. yeah, please. and then I guess my other thing, like, and it sort of references back to something you mentioned a while ago, and I probably should have brought it up then around you know planting more, giving back for people, and and sharing I guess the mm. station with others. Like, do you see that other than the the guiding which we've talked about do you see public being on the property more is that you know i, I think so yeah um you know we obviously we don't want to be getting uh, calls and texts every day for funny people wanting access for mm. for for everything but you know we're i think we're doing a community at the day at the end of the year where people can come on and do a four-wheel drive or you know check it out and it's something we've got a pretty amazing little slice of new zealand and we don't want to exclude mm-hmm. people from it and you know having said that there is great public access through the tiro trail that comes through the place and through you know a few other walking tracks and there's a public hut on the on the property mm-hmm. but if people have got the right intentions it's something we yeah definitely don't want to shut off from mm-hmm. the public yeah mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, yeah, and, and community planting days as well is something something we want to do if people want to come plant trees. There's right. lots of trees to be planted. I was going to so, say yeah, that yeah. was one of my other things because I know I know part of the the logistics that's yet to be solved of the billion trees is how to plant a billion trees. Mm. <laughs> like it's it's yeah. yeah, it's real really good to say, but it, there's a big job. Oh, it's huge uh, huge logistics behind it. Yeah. Mm. And that'll still be a manual process. Yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Still. Although there, I mean, this talk of technology, uh, something that's pretty pretty exciting. I heard the other day, drone direct seeding, mm. and yeah, I've got to, look, you know, yeah. be pretty hard to plant physically plant a billion trees. But if we can incorporate direct seeding um, via drone and nutrient capsules, or um, you know, through mm. other different methods, yeah, I've it, got a, pretty exciting. I've got a good friend that's on a um, 
the station back over in Alexandria and he sort of partly leads the way with a lot of drone stuff mm. and a lot of companies, I guess, before they launch stuff, give him the opportunity to trial different things and it's something we've talked about in the past too, is, is, is planting with drones. And I see they've done it in some wetlands overseas but it, that's almost more like a, a reforestation and it was what the bit I saw was into sort of mangrovey wet areas. Right, yeah. And I don't, Instantly, I was like, oh, I don't know if that would work in Central Otago. Yeah. <laughs> By the time it bounced off the hard ground and then rolled and, you know, created little patches. If there was no, if there wasn't the accuracy needed, I guess it could still work. But, um, yeah, it definitely looked like it might need some attention to mm. detail before it really succeeded here. But but that's right. But so what else, um, what have you got on the plans for hunts coming up? Uh, next weekend, I'm a mate from Christchurch and I, we're going to go for a... Four day do we got up in the snow somewhere? We think mm-hmm. yeah, still working out exactly where we're going to go, but yeah, pretty excited, excited for, for that. Tarashami for Tarashami, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he hasn't he hasn't shot a big game animal before, so hopefully oh, cool get him onto something, which would be yeah, pretty pretty excited about doing doing a yeah. big walk. And I mean that's the other aspect of the hunting that I love is the is the fitness side, getting really mm. physical and and busting up, you know, busting yeah, because you're. Do I would are you an ultra marathon runner or are you? Well, I've done, done I've done one. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I wouldn't yeah. say I'm an ultra marathon runner, but yeah, yeah, I'm a, yeah pretty into running and and fitness. Uh, you know, hopefully, I'm still obviously pretty pretty young. It was a bit of a mixed opinions around: is it good to be doing these big distances when you're young? And yeah. I didn't really come from a running background. I was sort of middle to the back and pack of cross country at yep. school. Um, so it's sort of a bit strange, I guess, that I've taken to running the last year or so. But yeah, it's something I definitely like to do again. But maybe do something a bit different, like you know, coast to coast, which I'm doing this coming February with Khan. Yeah, with Khan. Yeah. <laughs> What's he doing? What what parts? He's he taking? doing. He's doing the bike. I'm doing the. I'm doing the run, and Dad's doing the paddle. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I yeah. So David's in it as well. Yeah. Oh, that is cool. Khan's going to mark my words on this, but I asked him ages ago if he ever wanted to do a coast to coast, and he told me no. So. <laughs> That might be more derived at my ability than his, but whatever. Yeah, well, hopefully those old boys aren't going to slow me down. <laughs> oh, Carl might like that. <laughs> so I think hunters in New Zealand should probably be a, a little bit more aware of climate and ecological crisis that's happening at the moment. You know, we're looking at uh, between 30 and 50% of all species uh, going extinct mm. by around, you know, estimates around 2050, warming of two, 2 degrees. And New Zealand's ranked in uh, the top 10 countries in the world least likely to be affected by... By the climate crisis, but it's still going to have pretty profound effects. Um, we're going to lose all our all our glaciers are going to be gone pretty quickly. Uh, it's going to lend itself to a lot more invasive species and you know exotic plant uh, invasions as well. And it's probably not something that's going to affect hunters hunters directly, but I guess through our actions, we've got to be anyone who's a I guess nature frother like mm. I am is it's Some form, something yeah. we should be. S- s- very very aware of in the coming years because it's going to affect yeah every outdoor community around the world uh maybe new zealand hunters to a, a lesser lesser extent because of the you know the type of biomes that we're hunting in type of type of ecosystems and yeah t- tem- temperate biomes but it's something i think we should be we should be really aware mm. of and our our impact yeah it's like i don't know a lot about it but it is something in my circle or talking to farmers or anything sort of around, especially around Central Targo. And I guess this is, comes down to the, you know, we could be one of the few that are least affected. Like they're like, oh, well, you know, a bit more water in Central Targo is not a bad thing. Yeah. Or, which, you know, which climate models have predicted yeah. a little bit more rain in <coughs> and, Central. And, yeah. and to be fair, 
Yeah, yeah, and well, and every, yeah, every ecosystem's impacted differently. Some are going to be a little bit exactly. better off. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah, and yeah, I mean, just after this summer, I saw if one of my professors showed me a photo of his. He's been going there about you know twenty years of a bull kelp survey in Littleton Harbour, um, and every year you know beautiful bull kelp and the butterfish and all the all the fish that it support. And this year he went back and everything was gone. It was because we had a big marine heat wave, and that's just it's not going to come back. It's just all that Ooh. whole bull kelp ecosystem that was supporting that fishery is just just gone so it's something that's yeah definitely happening now yeah more so for the marine systems mm. yeah yeah no interesting i'll chuck all the the links to you your your instagram page and then i'll put the let them fish facebook mm-hmm. page on there do you have any other formats you'd like me to share no just just those two yeah yep yeah no i'll, I'll bang them on after the podcast and other than that thank you very much for your time no thanks very much for coming to talk really awesome. appreciate it yeah. this is just a I guess it's just an add-on. It's basically Finn and myself wanted to talk about this particular topic and for whatever reason we forgot, didn't get it on the original podcast so I just wanted to make a special deliberate note about it. And it is in regards to the Earth Overshoot Day. Now, this was new to me, uh, you know, after having a discussion with Finn about this. I spent some time looking at it and it was a very easy way for my personality to understand the importance of looking after our natural resources and looking after the ecology of what it is we have be it New Zealand or internationally so the earth overshoot day basically marks a date on the annual calendar where we as a population or as in humanity demand more from our ecological resources or natural resources in a given year than the earth can generate in that year and I know that's a little bit confusing but what I did when I looked into it is it showed me back in 1969 or 1970 when we first I guess recorded a deficit in the fact that in late December the population had used the resources that the the earth was able to regenerate the big issue here is we're now i guess close to 50 years on and that date has now found itself in july so in my mind that was a very black and white picture that we are now closer to halfway through the year and we've used the resources that the that the earth can regenerate Therefore, for the second half of the year, we are taxing this earth. So, and this is a very basic current description of the Earth Overshoot Day. So, I would suggest if it interests you at all to look it up yourself and, and make your own version of events and understand it yourself. And, and look for people like Finn to ask for, I guess, better clarity on this. But it showed me that. Essentially, and my figures are a little bit skewed here, but essentially for half the year, we are straight out taking from this earth. And we can't do that forever. So like I sort of said, we started in 1969, 1970, so we're close to 50 years on, we've already gone halfway through the year. So so where they start, I guess, promoting, I don't know if it's the right word, but promoting the earth overshoot day, is that if we can start pushing this date back by making little changes, then it eats. Each one of these calendar dates that we achieve as a population is a positive. And, and for me, the way I work, and I keep going back to this, that allows me to set little goals that are achievable. It doesn't sound like such a big burden 
that I essentially wash it off. I can look at it and go, well, okay, well, let's, you know, I can even break this down to my Earth overshoot day. Like, what am I doing? But as a whole, you know, if we can start making these little changes and pushing these dates back, it is a positive. And I think that's, you know, something I'm definitely taking on board now. And I would encourage the listeners to and, and, you know, to share that with your families and just understand it. I, for whatever reason, I don't know why it is I hadn't heard of this. And it could be just a current thing. But um, definitely have a look at it. Earth Overshoot Day. Really interesting. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.